we go. So I had to sneak out a little bit early to see who my Enneagram 8 friends are. The ones that are like, yeah, let's do something. I'm excited about this. Like, if you don't know what an Enneagram 8 is, ask your wife. She'll tell you later. But like, maybe the others of you I can see that are like, I don't want to make eye contact. He's going to ask us to do something today. Going to get back in my turtle shell. Don't let the world ask me to do any more. That's me. I, 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 I know that feeling. Hey, if you are one of those type of people that you are like, Enneagram Nate, let's go. I'm ready for any challenge. Or if you are a turtle, we are happy that you're here today. It doesn't matter, right? We're all, all this community. We all need each other. And my name's Christian. I'm the high school uh, program director here at Eastridge. I get an opportunity to preach sometimes. Others know me as Danae's husband. Um, no matter what, here I am. I'm excited to be here and get to, to share with you today. So over the last year, it seems like we have been asked to care about a lot of things. And because of that, and as a result of that, I find myself falling into this kind of like dangerous area of starting to care almost about nothing. And we have a word for that in the English language, that's called apathy. And, and unfortunately, I think that's where a lot of like people are right now, especially a lot of Christians. So many important issues have been brought to light over the last year, right? And, and there's been really good change, and there's been a lot that, that's been happened. And let, let's pick just a couple of the big ones, right? Racial injustice, COVID-19 pandemic. We've been asked to, to not only engage in those and listen to those issues, but we've asked, been asked to participate in those. We've been asked to do something about those. We've read books, we've watched movies, we've supported new businesses, We've marched, some of us. We've, we've done something. We've not gone to work. We've locked down. We've maybe homeschooled our kids, which we never had any intentions or ever th- thought that that would be something that we would do. We've worn masks or not worn masks or, or whatever it may be. We've, we've done things to flatten the curve. We've, we've actively tried to do something. And isn't it funny, like, I don't know about you, but like, this always kind of like snags me up, is when you are trying to do something good for one side, and you're trying to do something good over here, and then they like conflict, then what do you do? Like, do you go in March when it's a global pandemic and you're supposed to be social distancing? How do those like work together? Like, that's, that's a tricky situation. And I think what's getting more tiring, more exhausting, more difficult is, is this, is that each week it seems like there's a new thing that we're supposed to care deeply about and do something about, right? Like, just look at this last week. Israel and Palestine. I jumped onto social media, my Instagram, stories, and I'm, I'm not making this up. First one I see is from a friend that says, hey, Jewish people need our help. This is how you can go and do something. Literally, next one over, Palestinians need our help. This is how you can go and do something. And it's not just in the U.S., it's not just across there. It's, it's all sorts of different things. Shop small business, buy American, get an electric car, save the planet, don't use paper bags, that kills trees, don't use plastic bags, that fills up our landfills, use paper straws. You know, like, 
we got border crises, and we got elections, and we got riots, and homelessness, and graffiti, and we've got Russia, and China, and, and India, and, and the Middle East, and boycott the NFL, and boycott the NBA, but they did wear those cool social justice jerseys, so maybe don't boycott them, unless you are boycotting them for that, but then the relationships with China, man, this is really confusing. And we live in a world right now where no one can seem to agree on anything except one thing. This is the only thing that we can agree on right now. We all want change. I have not met anyone recently that has said, you know what? I kind of like it how it is. I think these are the good old days. We should just leave it like this. My kids, my kids are going to grow up loving this, you know? No, everybody wants something different. Everybody is clamoring for us to go and do something. So as Christians, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to engage in everything that gets thrown our way? Are we supposed to retreat into our little turtle shells and say, no, I'm not doing any of it? I'm sitting this one out? I have found myself a lot like the beginning of that song. A little overwhelmed, and all I've been able to do is say, hey, God, why don't, why don't you do something about it? Can you just take care of this? Because I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed right now. And what did that song say? And what were we going to read today? He says, I did. I created you. And I created you and 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 you. I created you. As Christians, we have been called to do something. And the time is now. The good news about this is, is this, is that our mission, our goal is clear. There's a clear opportunity, there's a clear, a clear mission, and there's a clear reward. I know you guys like prizes, I like prizes. There's a clear reward to this as well, right? So what are we going to do today? We are going to find out the one area that we know for sure God is calling us to do something. So last week, uh, Chris had the opportunity uh, to share with you guys, if you weren't here, I'm going to catch you up. So don't worry about it if you, if you missed it. But we are t- in John chapter 4, and we are talking about the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And where we went last week was that Jesus and his disciples are heading through Samaria, and they're stopping at a city uh, called Sychar. And when they stop at this city, it is about noon, and Jesus is thirsty, so he's going to stop at a well, hopefully to get some water, but he's also hungry. We hear that he sends out his disciples in verse 8 to go get some burgers and fries. Because go to town, get me some food, I, I need a snack, right? And while he's doing that, a woman shows up, a Samaritan woman shows up at the well and asks for a drink of water. And then the rest of it gets kind of crazy. Because he's kind of like, calls her out right right to her face. He's like, hey, by the way, I know you've had five husbands. You got a new live-in boyfriend. Like, let's just put it all on the table. Here we go. And what he ends up doing is he ends up sharing about her life with her. He says, hey, I know who you are. And then he says, hey, I know you were coming to get some water, but I've actually got something different that I think you would like. I've got this thing called eternal water. I got something that's just a little bit, a little bit better than, than what you were looking for. And at the very end, the woman says, hey, you know what? I know that there's a Messiah coming. I'm actually, I've had my eyes open. I've been looking for him. And when he gets here, that guy's going to explain everything. And Jesus in verse 26 says this. He says, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to 
you. I am him. And that's, that's where we left off last week, all right? So now you're all caught up. And then I love where we start off today. Look at this. Verse 27, the first two words, amazing, just then. Two little words, but man, this is great. Great theater, if you will. Just then, that means as Jesus is being like, hey, telling this woman, guess what? I, I am the savior of the world. In walks disciples, here they come. In walks the disciples, grocery bags full of, full of lunch, right? And you can just see it. Listen to this. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised, we're going to find out that's an understatement, to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? So here they come, they enter, and we've all been there. At least I've been there way too many times. You walk into a conversation that is going on that you want no part of being associated with, right? Like they're talking about something that you're like, I shouldn't be here. And you walk in and you, you've got like options. You can do the freeze and be like, they're not going to see me. You can do like the slow back up. Maybe they won't notice. You can try the chameleon, like find colors that match your thing. You like blend in, right? And you are just trying to avoid this conversation because you were, you were not invited to it in the first place. And so that's where the disciples find themselves. They have walked into a conversation and they are surprised to see Jesus talking to this woman. What surprise means, the translation of that is as they were unwilling or unable to believe it. Unwilling and unable to believe it. They were literally shocked. They were stunned. They were left speechless. And you can see that, right? Notice, he, he doesn't, they don't say anything. They don't ask the woman, hey, what are you doing here? And they don't ask Jesus, hey, what are you doing chatting with this lady? See, we need some, some cultural context to understand what's actually happening here. See, back in this time, a rabbi, like no rabbi, would have stopped and carried on a conversation with a woman. In fact, some Jews went as far to, to say or to think that if you spent time talking with a woman, even his own wife, you were at like best just wasting your time. At worst, you were taking time from studying and, and memorizing the Torah, and that was actually kind of like leading you down a path towards hell. So like the fact that Jesus is not only talking to this woman, but apparently has been having a prolonged conversation with her, this is like mind-blowing. Rabbis believed at that time, and I think still some of them do, that the, that the greatest good in life you can do is to study the Torah. I had the opportunity to go to Israel like two years ago, like this week. And I remember I was sitting in the airport waiting for my flight to go into Israel and there's several Jewish, Jewish people sitting there and they all had the Torah opened. They're all reading it, waiting for the plane. Like every moment of every day, it's a waste of time if you aren't, if you aren't studying it. And that's what they're saying. Like, even you wouldn't want to be seen or even be judged with the fact that you'd be wasting your time talking to a woman, be it your wife, your sister, your daughter. And now we're going to add something on top of that. This is not just a woman. This is a Samaritan woman. This is, as we learned last week, a second-class woman, if you will. So Jesus is not only talking and holding a conversation with a woman, he is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Verse 28 then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see who told me every come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. 
So the woman had can't come to obtain water. We knew that, right? She goes to the well. She goes at noon because she's hoping not to see anyone, but she finds Jesus there. She goes to get water. And clearly, the conversation that she has with Jesus at the well changes her life. It changes her. There was an impression made. And we can kind of see that. I love that John puts this in there because I, I, it's, a, it's a detail, but it's a big detail to me. And we can kind of like try to guess the reasonings why, and that's sometimes dangerous, but let's do this, right? We see that she leaves the water jar. So maybe she leaves the water jar because she's, she's got a plan. If I leave the jar here, Jesus is going to feel awkward about leaving with my jar still here. He knows I'm coming back. Or like, what if he leaves and someone else steals it? He's going to feel bad. So I'm going to leave it here so I know he'll be here when I get back. Maybe that's what she thought. Maybe the idea of carrying a heavy water jug back to the city was just going to weigh her down. He's like, no, I don't, I can't do that. I need to get back to my, to my, to the city real quick. Like, I, I don't have time to carry, carry the, the water jug that, that far. Maybe she had forgotten about the water entirely, right? She had come to get water, but Jesus had explained, hey, you know what? I got this new type of water, eternal life. And she's like, you know what? I'm not even thirsty for that anymore. Like, I don't, let's go. I'm, re I'm ready to go without that. Whatever the reason is, she leaves eagerly. She leaves fast. And her priority is, is simply to go and tell others about who she had just met. So we, we've been talking about this, and, and it's not like a surprise, but like, how did this work? Like it says in verse 30, they came, meaning the men, they came out of the town and made their way towards him, meaning Jesus. So she tells them, and it works. They go to meet him. Like this shouldn't happen. Not only is she a woman like we've been talking about in the society, but she's a woman of ill repute. This woman has had five husbands and has a new live-in boyfriend, right? This is, this is not the one that normally people would listen to. And men of the, of the village, you know, would have tried to like avoid her at all costs. Be like, oh man, I saw John. He was, he was down with her. Like he looks like husband number seven. Like no, like they would have tried to be like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. That could ruin my reputation. Her word was no good. Her word was no good because of who she was in her community, but her word was also no good of just because of her gender. At that time, if you would have tried to give a testimony in a court, a, a woman's testimony wouldn't have been counted. So why is her testimony of who she saw here, why does that work? Well, I think it's because of this. I think she came with boldness. She came with honesty. She comes telling everyone, listen, about the amazing things that I've, I've, I've encountered. This Jesus guy, he knows me. And look how she speaks to the men. I think this is absolutely brilliant. She doesn't come back being like, I know the Messiah, the Messiah knows me. Like, she doesn't like come bragging in, right? She's like, hey, come check it out. Like, is this, is this the Messiah? Could this... Could this be the Christ? Like she piques their interest. She, she gets their minds thinking about it. Hey, come to your own conclusions. 
test, test your self-knowledge. Come and, come and see if you actually agree with me that this guy is the Messiah. But I think the main reason why she's successful in, in this, in her witness, is because of her excitement. Because of the visual change that she's gone through. Think about that. I'm sure she probably walked around town typically with her head down, maybe her hands in her pockets, arms crossed, not wanting to make eye contact with anyone. People judge her. People, people look at her poorly. I'm sure she doesn't walk around with her head held up high, talking to people all the time. But here comes this woman, woman that would have been well-known in the community, walks in and is like, guys, you got to check this out. He knows everything about me. I don't care what you think anymore. Like, I think I might have met the Messiah, right? There is, there is excitement. There is, there is joy. I think they are just as impressed with her excitement and, has her, and her candor as her argument, right? It wasn't something that she, had, she really like articulated very well and, and she was like, look at all these great points I have made. You should come and check it out now. No, it was just they could see the change in her life. So we change scenes, right? We leave, we leave the woman in the city telling her story about her, her encounter with Jesus and the men uh, of that city coming this way. And we start here in verse 31, back with Jesus and his disciples. And now remember, they just showed up with food, and Jesus is apparently still hungry. At least he should be. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, verse 31, Rabbi, eat something. Seems reasonable. 32. But he said to them, I have food and eat that you, uh, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. 33. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? Parents, we know how this goes, right? Kids like, Hey, I'm hungry. And you're like, Okay, fine. Make something up. You go back and they're like, Nope, I'm good. Found a fruit snack in my pocket. And you're like, Seriously? Like, come on. And that's what Jesus does here, right? He's like, no, and thanks for going and getting that, but I'm actually, I got, I got my own food here. And from our viewpoint, like 2,000 plus years later, reading, reading the Bible, we know what's happening, right? Like, like the disciples are just teeing it up for Jesus here. He is going to come back with an answer that is, that is going to surprise them, but like it's going to just be, you know, it doesn't disappoint. So here we go. Verse 34. My food. He's got different food. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and one another reaps is true. I sent you to reap that you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. I think what Jesus is getting to is, is, is something that comes actually from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites after they had been uh, in the desert. He says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with the manna, which neither you nor the, your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on the, every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, Jesus came to earth 
with a single-minded mission. And because of that, sometimes his actions, sometimes the things that he says, sometimes the things that he does don't make sense to those around him. Why they're in Samaria in the first place, why they're at a well talking to a Samaritan woman, like this is to the disciples why he's not hungry anymore. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. And as we continue to will continue to see as we read the book of John. For those of you that have read the Gospels and, and know the Gospels, we know this, that Jesus' ministry is nothing other than the submission and performance of the will of the one who sent him. That's all that Jesus is about. Submission to and performance of the will of the Father. So the rest of the details, they're just going to work themselves out. If I got to go meet a woman at a well, well, if that's where God wants me, that's where God wants me. There is greater sustenance, and this is what Jesus is saying, there is greater sustenance to him and greater satisfaction in doing the Father's will than there ever could be in the food that the disciples were going to bring back to him. That fills me up, that satisfies me. If I get to do the will of the Father, that's all I need. Can you imagine if we felt that same way? Like, think about how we think about food for just a second, right? Like, food is a big deal to us. We schedule it, we, dis- we discuss it, we share about it, we tell our friends about it, we take pictures of it, we go outside our comfort zone to, like, try new foods, we schedule a time to have food with the ones that we love. Half of you are probably thinking about lunch right now instead of what I'm talking about, like, Right? Food is so important, and it brings us joy, and it brings us satisfaction, and it brings us happiness, and I like cupcakes just as much as the next guy, right? I'm right there with you. But what if we change that, and what if those feelings and the thoughts and all that stuff that we put towards food was towards doing the will of the Father? Like, whoa, that's, that's where Jesus is at. He says, that's better. That fills me up better than any food could. My food, as Jesus says, is different than your food. Just like he had told the woman that the water that he offers is different than the water that she was there for. So here we go, all right? We're going to do something. God's going to call us into something. God's going to say, now's the time. Verse 35, he puts it bluntly. He says this. He says, open your eyes. That's how he puts it in the NIV translation. I love all three of these, and I think we need all of them. NRSV, look up around you. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Now open them. Don't just stare one direction. Look around. Like, I'm calling you to something. You guys ready for this? The time is now. And how often do we, even if we do open our eyes or look around, do we say, ah, it can wait? Uh, it's the middle of a pandemic. No one's doing anything right now. It's all right. I'll share my faith later. Like, everyone's kind of caught up in a lot of stuff. It's been really distracting. It's been a tough time. I'll do it later. Fun fact, I was doing a little research this week uh, for this, and I came across this stat. The age group least likely to share their faith, 65 and older. So if you're just sitting there going, hey, when I get older and more mature and I'm retired and I got time to do that, that sort of thing, yeah, that's when I'll do it. No, you won't, right? Jesus says, don't make excuses. The people are ready to hear about Christ now. 
And so often, aren't we just blind to what's happening around us? Aren't we blind to the readiness of people in their relationship with Christ? Jesus tells us to become more alert, to be more ready, that the harvest time is now. Right? Don't you usually harvest in four months? No, just do it now. So do you need motivation? I like motivation. You need a little, little something? Here we go. Jesus says, hey, here, here it is. We're all in this together. Here's the incentive. Doing the work of God draws a wage. Doing God's work pays well. It satisfies. Both sowers and reapers will find joy in seeing people come to Christ. I get to work with middle school students and high school students. And I am not naive enough to, know, to, to say that like everything that I say and do, kids guaranteed will you know, come to Christ. I don't get to see that. But I can hope in some instances that what I say or what they hear or the interactions of our team, they get to meet Christ a little bit. And maybe they don't make a decision there. But that's why we need you in other places of their life, right? Later down the line. Maybe in their 20s, maybe in their 30s, maybe in their 40s. Maybe you're, maybe you're a hospice chaplain and you get them at the last second. But what happens if we don't work together? What happens if I send them out and, and your eyes aren't open and they never get to actually come to Christ because of that? Rabbi Tarfon, a guy from 130 AD, I know you guys are very familiar with him, said it this, fantastic. The day is short and the task is great and the laborers are idle and the wage is abundant and the master of the house is urgent. I'll read that one more time for you. The day is short and the task is great and the laborers are idle and the wages is, are abundant and the master of the house is is urgent. It's time is now to do something. The Samaritans, let's catch back up with them. Verse 39. Now from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. That's what she says. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. See, this takes all the pressure off. Our job is simply to point people towards Christ. Give people the opportunity. His word is enough. Do you see what they said? They don't come there and like, you know what? You made a, you made a very articulate argument. And I now believe. They don't even remember what she said. They're like, ah, I forgot what you said. Thanks for pointing me here. But now I've, I've heard what Jesus says. Like, Jesus, can you stay longer? We want, we want more of you. See, it's never about us. Like, we, we're a part of it, but it's not reliant. Like, the results aren't reliant upon us. I think about this. What if I was in that woman's position? What if... I had thoughts that sometimes I have here and today. What if I would have filled up my jar and just walked back to the city? What if I would have kept my interactions with Jesus to myself? What if I would have been concerned about what other people would have thought? 
What if I could have justified that in my own mind? Hey, I just met him. Let me think this one through before I start sharing it. I don't know what to say. They're probably going to judge me. They're not going to listen. Maybe I'll do it later. I mean, how many times have we done that? If the Samaritan woman does this, verse 39 through 42, we just take a big old eraser and, and wipe it out of the Bible. Because all those people don't meet Jesus. It's because of her. So, you guys ready? We ready to do something? Ready to answer that call? I got bad news. I don't think we are. Maybe not all of us. Listen to this stat. Barna Institute did a survey, 1993. At that time, nine out of ten people agreed that every Christian has the responsibility to share their faith. 25 years later, they asked the same question again. If you don't have your calculator, that's 2018. 25 years later, they asked the same question. At that point, 64% said every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. 25-point drop. 10% in 1993 at that time agreed that evangelism was the sole job of the local church. Local church's responsibility. Leave it up to the professional Christians. They're the ones that are supposed to go out and do it. I bet you can imagine that it's gone up. It has three times. Almost 30% of the people say that now. Hey, I'm not going to do that. We'll leave that to the church to do that. So people are feeling less personal responsibility to share their faith, less personal responsibility to witness to others, and are putting more responsibility on the church. And this was 2018. I can only imagine those numbers have probably increased. But from what we've read today, that's not right. It's not what God calls us to do. I think that's a problem, right? He says all of us should be involved. On Wednesday, I asked my high school students to do this. I said, hey, even if you guys are on board with this and are saying, we should, we, we agree, like we should go and, you know, God's calling us to share, share our lives and share our faith and, and to do something about it. What are the things that, are hold, that would hold you back from doing it? And they put together this list. And I honestly think that if I asked you guys, the adults in the room today, you guys would put together a very similar list as they put together. They said this, they said, the fear of failure Fear of judgment, fear of conflict, fear of not being prepared or lacking of knowledge. What if I annoy them and they don't want to be my friends anymore? What if they get angry and they never want to hear about Jesus again? What if I'm too young? What if I'm not smart enough? What if they ask me a tough question? What if I had just met Jesus? What if I'm a Samaritan? What if I'm a woman living in a time when no one wants to listen to me and no one takes my word seriously? What if I have a questionable reputation? What if I don't know what to say other than just come check it out? Evangelism and sales are, are different, but there is something that I think that's similar. One nugget here, and it's this. Genuine excitement creates genuine interest. Genuine excitement creates genuine interest. When I was in college, uh, I thought I was going to be a real estate agent. I graduated in 2008. You now know I'm not a real estate agent. Um, so I, I did an internship during the summer, and it was like slave labor. It wasn't much of an internship. But what I was called to do is I went to uh, Sherwood, Bull Mountain. If you're not familiar with the area, uh, it is like a mountain, and every stinking house 
their front door is in the second story. So it's like upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs. And what my job was to do was to go and ask people if they would be interested in knowing the value of their home. I was Zillow, okay? So I just showed up and was like, hey, would you be interested in knowing the value of your home? And they would be like, no. And so what I would have to do to get myself excited for this, by the way, I'm dressed in a suit. It's like August and I'm climbing 8,000 stairs on a mountain. So it was, it was awesome. So I would get to there, and I'd be like, Saturday morning, last thing I want to do, I'd be in my car, for you Office fans, Dwight Schrute, you know, like, putting on my music, just like, let's go! Get myself all excited, right? Go out, hit that first door, and they'd be like, peek out the windows, and like, oh no, he's selling something, vacuums, Jesus, I don't know what he's doing, but I don't want any of it, you know, then they wouldn't be happy to see me, and go to the next one, and by like door three, I'm just like, this is the worst, I hate this, and people totally saw through my forced enthusiasm, people totally saw that it wasn't genuine, and guess what, I wasn't very successful at it, no one cared, The song I played for you guys at the beginning said this, Well, I don't know about you, but I am sick and tired of a life with no desire. I don't want a flame, I want a fire. And I want to be the one who stands up and says, I'm going to do something. If not us, then who? If not me and you, right now it's the time for us to do something. Verse 35, I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. I got a confession to make. This week, I started praying for you guys. I started praying early. I got, I got these verses a little while ago. I was super excited about them. I started praying. And I started praying that God would just poke you right in the ribs while you're sitting there. I started praying that he would wake you up and, and start stirring something in you. I started getting excited about what it would look like to see the, the body of Eastridge and the body of Christ all jazzed up and saying, let's go and, and heading out these doors. I started seeing pictures of, of families changed and workplaces changed and, and schools changed. And I started seeing all of this coming to fruition in our communities. And man, it sounded ideal and it was awesome. And I was so excited. And I was like, we're going to do this. Then I started studying things and I realized there's a problem. The problem with the rah-rah, let's-go mentality is that it fades. The problem with the rah-rah, let's-go mentality is, is everyone's asking us to rah-rah, let's-go right now. And you might leave here and you might be like, yes, God, I got it. I'm going to do something. Here we go. But the problem is you'd get on your social media at lunchtime while you're thinking about your food and you go, oh yeah, I should do something about that, and I should do something about that, and I should do something about that. Then Monday and Tuesday, and then you'd be a turtle again, and you'd be like, no, I'm done with this. Like, too much. So I started changing what I was praying for. I started changing what I was going to pray for you guys about, and myself included. I started to pray that this week, that you would encounter God. That this week you would have a life-altering encounter with God. I started praying that you would know what it feels like to be fully known and fully loved by him. Just like the woman at the well. No judgment, fully known, fully loved. And if that's the case, if that's where you're at, the rest of the results, it's going to happen. It's not going to be anything I said. Look at the, look at the woman at the well. 
It's all about the encounter with Christ. So that is what I've been praying for you guys about this week, that you would meet him. Maybe you've met him before and it's been a long time, that that, that fire, that, that little flame would turn into a fire again. Maybe you've never met him. Well, go meet him this week. See what he's got for you. The rest of it will happen. I had a student years ago, before I led uh, youth ministry here at Eastridge, I uh, ran Young Life in Clackamas. I had a student that we took to camp, a Young Life camp. And uh, gosh, his life was changed that week. On our bus ride home, he says, hey Christian, what can I do? What's my next steps? And I don't remember. I think I told him, go read Mark, or maybe I told him, go read John. Doesn't matter. I told him, go read one of the Gospels. We'll say John. Told him, go read the Gospel of John. Sunday, drop him off, three o'clock, everyone gets off the bus, great week, love you, see you soon. Sunday, here at Eastridge, we've got, it's 4th of July, 4th of July Sunday, which back in the day we would do out in the parking lot. So it's like early morning, 4th of July, and he shows up with his lawn chair. I'm like, dude, you came to church, that's awesome, I'm so excited to see you. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I wanted to be here. Ten minutes later, five of his buddies, all holding lawn chairs, show up. I'm going, why are they? Why are they here? It's like, oh yeah, I invited them. 9.30 in the morning on July 4th, and they're here? Yeah, yeah. He goes, what's my next steps? What do you mean? I just read through John, we'll, talk, we'll meet in a week, and we'll talk about it, you know, where you're at and how things are going, whatever else. He goes, yeah, I did that. I read through John. You what? Yeah, last night I read through John. I'm ready for the next thing. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell him how to read his Bible. We didn't set out a plan of evangelism. We didn't, we didn't give him the 10 main points of how to get there. I didn't have to give him a rah-rah speech. The dude met Jesus and caught on fire. He read the whole gospel, couldn't put it down all night. Then calls his friends, says, hey, meet me at this random church that you've never been to. Show up with lawn chairs. We gotta, you got to see this. When you encounter Christ, the rest of it just works itself out. We're compelled to do something. we got to do it. It reminds me of this song that we're about to sing to close things out. See, this song is a song that I used to sing back in college. and um, I went to a school called Trinity Western University up in British Columbia, Canada. Sounds very Christian, and it was. But the cool thing is, is that none of us were there to be professional Christians. None of us were there wanted to go into full-time ministry. And on Fridays, we had this thing called Praise Chapel, 11 to 1130. And one of the songs, I can't remember any of the other songs, but for whatever reason, this one sticks out in my mind. We would sing this song. And this song was, was awesome because of this. One of the words says, we must go. We must go. We got to do this. And it was so cool to be sitting there as a business major saying, we must go. And sitting next to my roommate, who was a psychology major, saying, we must go. Sitting next to human kinetics and sitting next to biology and math and nursing, political science, a whole bunch of people that weren't going into full-time ministry. People from the States and people from Canada and people from Africa and people from South Africa, people from Central America and people from Japan and China and Korea, all different, all going different places. But here we are, we sat in this one spot saying, we got to go. And as we'll sing today, it says, fill us up and send us out. 
fill us up and send us out. Not just, hey, give us, give us a bunch of excitement and we're going to go do it. No, God, meet with us first. Give us everything we need. Fill us up and then send us out. And I think that's what God's asking for us today. I don't know where you're going or what you're doing or what, you know, maybe you're in business, maybe you're teaching your kids at home, maybe you're a nurse, maybe you're a police officer. I don't know where you're going and what you got going on, but it doesn't matter. We are all called to share Christ. We're all called to reap harvest. We're all called to get filled up and get sent out. Let me pray for you guys. God, Lord, I thank you for, uh, God, I thank you for our community. Lord, I thank you for Eastridge. Lord, I, I confess that I started off worried about the results, thinking about what could happen. And God, I got, I got the cart before the horse. Lord, I pray that this week, that instead we would, we would have encounters with you, God. Lord, we know that by meeting with you, being fully known, fully loved, will change lives, Lord. And I pray for boldness this week as we meet with you. Lord, that we would look for opportunities for those people in our communities, those friends, those family around us that are ready. God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. In your holy name, amen.